when I uh, selected today's uh, conversation, uh, I never imagined it would be as difficult as it proved to be. Uh, and I think in retrospect, um, if I knew how difficult it was going to be to try to untangle today's discussion, I probably would have chosen something else. <laughs> um, but I, I still feel like um, what we're going to discuss today is something very valuable for us in our lives. Uh, and it's going to maybe you know, be some lasting lessons that we could take with ourselves. Uh, and what will be clear to everyone is that even though we will try to, uh, like we said, uh, untangle and navigate our way through a very difficult debate in the Talmud and try to understand what they're arguing about and also what the lesson is for us, uh, I still believe that it will be clear that even after our discussion, uh, many questions will, will remain. There'll still, be, there's still points to ponder, even after our discussion will have concluded. Uh, and what's interesting about this particular debate in the Talmud is, on one hand, how vague it seems to be, uh, how general, how broad the discussion is, uh, and not specific, and how little we're told about it, and the actual length of the debate. Because, you know, we're going to discuss it maybe for an hour and a half or an hour or whatever it is. Uh, and what we find in the Talmud is that the great rabbis spent multiple months, years in fact, discussing uh, this debate and arguing. And we just get a little over, you know, uh, overview or a little tiny little snapshot of the debate and we don't actually find out any of the details. You know, what were they really arguing? We have to kind of work backwards from the debate itself and try to extrapolate what are they even talking about? What's going on over here? So it's, 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 it's exceedingly difficult. And I'm going to, uh, I don't frequently do this, but I have some printouts uh, to just take a look at kind of how succinctly uh, the rabbis uh, in, encapsulate their argument. Uh, and we're going to read, read it, and obviously there's a lot of questions that are going to be. I, I have a list over here of 18 different questions that I came up with after just reading this, you know, these, you know, whatever it is, 55 words of, of the debate. Okay, so let's give a little picture about where this is in the Talmud and who we're talking about. So we have um, famously the great uh, rabbis, the great heroes of the Talmud, Hillel and Shammai, or Shammai. And they were study mates. They were partners in study. And uh, they had debates. Uh, but the real debates uh, emanated from, not from Hillel and Shammai themselves, rather from the uh, parallel academies that Hillel and Shammai founded. So we have the two scholars, and they had uh, a, a select number of disagreements. I think the, number, the, the total number of disagreements between Hillel and Shammai themselves that are recorded in the Talmud is only three or so. Uh, yet they each established schools of scholars that, uh, that, that were modeled after Hillel and Shammai, respectively, and those schools would debate each other uh, vigorously, and we have hundreds upon hundreds of recorded uh, of disagreements between these two, two different schools. They're not like some of those Knesset meetings, are they? Those testimonies are crazy. That's I, right. I went to one in 1973, and I thought, I'm glad I got alive. <laughs> yeah, so the Knesset is something else. But actually, um, the Talmud does give a description about the debates that, that, that would happen and how intense they would get. They, you know, it was not cordial. 
Uh, and in fact, the Talmud says that when two people debate Torah, they take it so seriously that they start hating each other. You know, this is not cordial. You know, this is Torah. You know, if, if you have a position in Torah, you have to defend it vigorously. You can't just give in to, you know, oh, well, let's be friends. Let's agree to disagree. No! The whole world depends upon this discussion. I'm not going to agree to disagree. This is too important to agree to disagree. The Talmud describes that they would fight. And even a father and a student, the Talmud in condition says, a father and a, st- and, and a child, right? they're, having a, they're studying Torah. Isn't that a wonderful thing to do with your child? You're studying Torah to do with your child, and they have a disagreement. And they start arguing. They start hitting each other. The Talmud describes one episode where two rabbis were arguing, and one of them said, like, if I had a knife, I would stab you. Can you imagine? Is that the way rabbis talk? <laughs> uh, but, you know, but once, you know, once they agree to terms, then they love each other more than ever before. You know, if you, the people that you go in the trenches with, the people that you're in the, you know, in the foxhole, so to speak, with, those are the people that you develop lifelong bonds with. But the Torah study is not cordial. It's, it's too serious. Either way, let's read what, let's read what, 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 what let's just give a preliminary reading of, of how the Talmud record, records this. And by the way, the Talmud prior actually tells us that the, the halacha, the law, follows the, schools, uh, the school of, of Hillel. So whenever, almost, almost without exception, whenever there's a debate in the Talmud between Hillel and Shammai, we are told that the halacha follows Hillel. Not necessarily because they were greater scholars, but because of other reasons, which is another discussion. The rabbis taught. Now, this is from the book of Erevin. The book of Erevin, one of the most difficult books of the Talmud, it discusses the laws of Erevin, or of an Eruv. An Eruv is uh, essentially a... That's right. Bernie, what is it? The string community. Well, <laughs> an Eruv is a... <laughs> well, that's an oversimplification. But an Eruv deals essentially with the laws of, of different property types. Uh, if you have a public property, a private property, in-between property, and how me- you could perhaps change that. So like an Eruv that we have today is essentially an enclosure that unites whatever is within the enclosure. If you have a building, like everything that's in the building is inside. Whatever is outside the building is outside. Well, what defines the building? There's walls. Well, an Eruv essentially is walls that... Uh, in, you know, in, in incorporate whatever's within it into its own domain, so to speak. Now, the, you know, the, the wonderful um, workarounds or loopholes is that it doesn't have to be a full wall. It could be even half a wall. And not only that, it could be just a little tiny string that goes around an entire city that makes it as if it's one domain. So, for example, the laws of Shabbat prohibit uh, lifting an item and carrying it from one domain to another domain. So if you have a private domain and a public domain, you cannot transport... Uh, uh, items from one domain to another domain. You can't take a piece of bread from this domain and carry it and transfer it to the other domain. However, if it was all one domain, no problem. Well, let's just put a string around the whole city. It's one domain. Mazel tov. (laughs) That's what essentially they did. Like Jerusalem has it. There is a string surrounding the entire city of Jerusalem so somebody could carry whatever they want within the city, within the the borders of this area. Does it have to be a physical something? Oh yeah, it has to be physical. Right, but it has to be physical. It could be, it could be a wall. It could even be a string, uh, like Bernie said. Either way, we find in this Talmud something that relates, I don't think in any way, to strings. Uh, and it's as follows. The rabbis taught. For two and a half years, the academies of Shammai and Hillel debated. 
So interestingly, we find a length of time in the debate. And the question is, what's the significance of that? Okay, so what's the, argu- what's the argument? These arguing, it is preferable for men to not be created more than to be created. We're worse off being created. Right? It's be- it's, it would have been better for us to have not been created. And these arguing, so the other side was arguing, it is preferable for men to be created more than to not be created. They counted, means they voted, and concluded it is preferable for men to not be created more than to be created. And now that he was indeed created, he should contemplate his actions. Alternatively, he should scrutinize his actions. And that's it. That's all we get. That's all we get. We get no further elaboration, no more instructions, no more insight as to what they're even arguing about. Two and a half years they spend talking about this, and this is how they give it to us. This, this is the package we have delivered. You know, imagine if we had the minutes of all the arguments. Can you imagine? Imagine what they would talk about for two and a half years. Unbelievable. And this is what we have. So obviously it's very dense, and we have to try to examine it piece by piece, and we'll try to ask some questions and try to maybe um, gain some sort of insight as to what the lesson here really is. Uh, so what do you guys say? Uh, there's, uh, there's some obvious questions, no? So this is all you had to go on? This is it. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> do we have the minute? We don't. Nobody has. We have nothing. This is what we have. Well, we have something. We'll see what we have. But. Yeah, so that, it's not clear. It's not clear because usually we just have cut and dry. You know, there's an argument. House of Shammai says this. House of Hillel says that. We don't know how long they debated. We don't know anything. So this is every single rabbi within... It, it says that this know. was a part of a debate for two and a half years. Was it the entire focus of two and a half years? Maybe. Uh, you know, that would be obviously remarkable. Maybe not. But either way, it's still a long time for it to be, you know, on the discussion board. On the table. Uh, and that's, you know, I think probably question number one, like... Two and a half years. Could you imagine spending two and a half years of your life debating any topic? Well, the Austrian and Keynesian uh, economics, <laughs> you know? It could have been once a month for an hour. Yeah, but then would the Talmud really characterize it as two and a half years? It would say 30 hours, <laughs> you know? If, if, you know? Maybe, maybe there isn't a lot to debate upon. But, you know, but it seems to, they're implying that there's really a lot that's going on. And we have no idea, like, what, what's there to argue about? Okay, we're here, right? We're here, right? Yeah. So is this argument entirely academic? It is entirely. It's entirely academic. Entirely. So why would they spend two and a half years? These are people that have very important items to discuss. It's not like why? they're wasting time. They say, is, let's drink some coffee and have pointless hypothetical is, arguments. Why is there no transcript? I mean, weren't most debates in the Talmud there was details and everything. That's right. So, so we have we have a lot here that we need to unpack, and we have to look because you're right. It's possible that the minutes are there, or at least the core elements of the arguments are there, but either they're hidden in this particular passage, or maybe they're scattered throughout the Talmud. Remember, the Talmud uh, was characterized once by yours truly as being a wonderful encyclopedia of all of Jew- Jewish knowledge with one caveat, that being that the encyclopedia is not in alphabetical order and 
each entry is divided into 100 parts and scattered. Good luck. Right? This was the Beit HaSul Shaman Hill. So we're talking about the first and second century of the Common Era. Long time ago. So it's possible that there is some information about what exactly they were arguing about, uh, but it's not necessarily written here, or at least not spelled out over here, and it could be everywhere in the Talmud, but it's going to be in little snippets. So I found a lot of other areas of Talmud that do seem to correlate uh, to this discussion. But you're asking a question, like what's, you know, clearly we are not being given an exhaustive recap of this debate, clearly. If we're going to try to gain some insight, we're going to have to work hard. It's not going to be easy. I don't know if it's two and a half years hard, maybe two and a half hours hard, but clearly what we have over here is a drop in the bucket of what really went on. That's clear. Um, Go ahead. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I would agree that we don't know exactly how long they were discussing it, but the Talmud does go out of its way. I'm telling you, this is, this is, this is an oddity. This, you know, this is, this is abnormal. This is an anomaly. We don't find this in the Talmud. For how, many, how long did they discuss it? The Talmud is clearly stressing that this was a multifaceted and very lengthy debate. Um, what does it mean? Does it mean that they were discussing it every day, all day, 14 hours a day? Maybe. But even if it doesn't, it means this was a constant area of argument between the great schools of yeshivas of the greatest minds the greatest scholars of the time spend time analyzing this question and to us it seems like the answer is obvious right what would the answer be god created us right you know we needed the short end of the stick and that's that if, if you know if we were just presented with the argument hey is it better for us to be around here or not well we're around and who made us around the almighty and do we think the Almighty would give us the shorter end of the stick? Unlikely. And in fact, we have some Talmudic uh, verification of that idea, and that is the Talmud says, "Call the Avid Rachmana Latav Avid," which means all that the Almighty does is for good. And we have discussed in the past how is it possible to look at what we think as bad things from God's perspective? They're really good, right? God's playing the—he's playing the long game. Right? He is a bigger picture. You know, so, for example, like we have discussed in the past, if you see a small child about to chase a ball into a busy highway, you tackle the child. The one child looks at you, the adult who tackled him, right? This adult hates me. Big, big lawsuit about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but if, you know, the, in the child's mind, the smaller picture, I was just tackled by this adult who clearly hates me. But from the bigger picture, the, the, the adult saved the child's life, you know, or would, prevented severe injury. Similarly, we have always discussed in the past how, well, yeah, it's possible for God to have, be playing the big picture, and, uh, and we only see a very, narrow, a very narrow picture. But still, here the Talmud concludes, seemingly, that it's bad for us. And we say the Almighty does what's good for us. How is that possible to... You know, where's the coexistence of those two truth-isms? Uh, Bernie's jumping to the conclusion. Why, <laughs> why, 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 
So let, 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 let me break down some of the questions that I have and see what you guys say here. So question number one. This is, I think, maybe, maybe it's significant, maybe it isn't. I don't actually have an answer to all these questions, by the way. Uh, hopefully there will be some payoff at the end. But I don't have the answer to all the questions. I think it's, 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 it's important to still think about it. Maybe we'll, we'll revisit this in a year when I finally have a clear understanding of everything. It doesn't tell us who says what. It's very interesting. I saw some of the commentators try to say, Hillel say the schools of Hill says that, the school of Shabbos says Usually you say, Shabbos says this, Beis Hillel says that, and they argued and they brought proofs. Here it says they said this, they said that, no proofs, and then there is some sort of agreement to conclusion. They both agree, which is bizarre. It's, it's, it's atypical. <laughs> number one. Number two, the debate's entirely academic. It's hypothetical. It's not the typical kind of debate in the Talmud. That was very practical. There has to be some sort of practical lesson for us, I would think. No? Well, what's the lesson for us? Like, we're around. Is there any way for us to change that? Maybe that's not the point of this debate. Okay. So maybe the point is just the actual discussion of what it would mean for us not to have been created versus mm. That's another question. Say, oh, wait a minute. Let's, look, let's imagine that the opposite was true. We weren't created. What would life look like then? Well, if we weren't created, we weren't created. We didn't exist, right? If we don't exist, then who are we? I mean, so your, your question, Angie, is that, okay, let, let's imagine that the reality was not the way the reality it is today. Aren't we back to what the first sentence of Genesis is? In the, the world was void and dark. And- okay, but remember, we're talking, not talking about the world, we're talking about man. Very, very interesting. This is, it means you're extrapolating and saying, hey, if there's no man, there's no world. Let's assume there is a world so everything at large. Everything the fifth day, maybe, we could say. Uh, in other words, yeah, does, yes, does exactly. it assume that animals were created, or does that even enter into this? We're talking about men, right? So obviously right. everything else there's is... There's a whole new debate right there. <laughs> no, but no, I mean, we just open up, Andrea, thanks to you, an entire new layer of the discussion, which is let's contrast what life would be like if we weren't created. What would that be? Because we're working with a, you know, with a reality that in our minds is fixed. And that is that we are created. The Talmud says, hey, hypothetically, if we weren't created, things would be much better. Well, what would things be like then? And maybe when we know what things would have been like, we understand the contrast of these two options and that could teach us not only about what things would have been like if we weren't created, but it also teaches us what the reality today is, now that we are created, what changed. And that could be very valuable for us. If we were in the higher realms up there playing harps, and then we get, we get created here, we're down here with all this mess. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm sorry? He's right not to be created. <laughs> Oh, so you, so you actually agree. Because Dan in his email made it very clear his position that it's better for us to be created. And you're saying, no, it's better for us not to go duke it out, guys. You can be hell out. You can be Shema. Because we're created, we have all this responsibility. Ooh, okay. And maybe not having responsibility is a better thing, no? Because responsibility means consequences. Ooh. Okay, so we're starting to flesh this out. This is great. <laughs> well, that would go along with the scrutinizing the actions. See what you, part of your Ooh. responsibility is thinking about what your decision will do or affect. Okay, so now we're working with the imperfect reality of being created. Now let's try to make the most of it 
by contemplating or scrutinizing their actions. Okay, this is getting interesting, well, guys. Talk about the Tikkun Olam? Yeah. So you think that that's maybe the postscript that it says now that we're created? We have to think of other things. It says scrutinize. Our Very action. interesting. Maybe okay. it's now that we're Step created, we should follow the Torah. Right? I mean. Uh, okay. Well, you, you think maybe it should have just pointed that out? Is that what you're saying? I saw one of the questions. Maybe this isn't as complicating as we're. I don't know. I, I just. Two uh, years. <laughs> I mean, you know, he should scrutinize his actions. I mean, doesn't. Um, our scripture, I mean, isn't it basically a regulator? It's a promotion. It's negative and positive aspects of our actions, right? So you're saying, you're saying wonderfully. You're saying, why why are we talking about scrutinizing our actions? Let's just say, hey, follow the Torah, and then of course the Torah will compel us to scrutinize our actions. Why is it cherry picking and saying, now that we're created, let's scrutinize our actions? Say you know, say much broader. Now that we're created, follow the Torah. That's the guide of how. People that are created, i.e., us, maximize opportunity. The Torah, so. Yeah, but this is an exhortation to follow. This right. is a call to action. Right, right. So just why give us a, a, a such a narrow call to action, scrutinize your actions, give us a bigger uh, call to action, follow the Torah, and that includes everything. Interesting. Okay, so you're, so you're saying two separate points here. You're saying, number one, that um, while this exercise is going to be very frustrating for us because we're dealing, but, it, but it, might be, it might be beneficial as well because we're working with God's kind of process of, of thought, number one. Number two, what was number two again? Yeah, the free will, that changed. That changed. We're not created. We don't have free will. We are created. We have free will. Kind of like what Noel said, that there's now responsibilities and thus consequences. Okay, let's continue with our. Go ahead. Yeah, and I think that's what Steve kind of pointed out because our philosophy puts men at the center of of the world. You know, it's not a geocentric or heliocentric; it's a man-centric world, and men for the purpose of all of it all, and. Um, and therefore, you know, in a, in a weird way, this is, this, is be, this is a little weird, but it might be relevant to what we said earlier. You know, our, our body is composed of what? Hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen. Thank you. Um, from the biblical sense, it's composed of earth. And you know what? You take the body, you put it back in the earth, and eventually it acclimates back to where it's from. Now, what's our soul made out of? Well, we don't really know, right? It's not made out of anything physical, right? Now, what's it compared to? What's the soul? What's our soul compared to? I don't remember. Is there? It's compared to angels as well. Sparks, sparks of the creation. Yeah, let's not get let's not get too spiritual here, right? 
Spark. I don't know what sparks of the creator means. <laughs> huh? So, yeah, okay, but what does that mean? Like, how, what in our universe is comparable to ourselves? We did speak about this many times, a few times, actually. Uh, you guys remember Moses? What did Moses look like? His face was like the sun. Uh, why is that? Because Moshe's face did not have a buffer of bodily influence. We all have a soul within us, but the soul is covered up by the influence of our body. So the light of our soul is dimmed and makes it that we can look at other people. Moshe had no influence of his body, therefore his son, his, his, his soul shone forth and the Jewish people can look at him and have to put on an artificial mask as we find in Exodus. Moshe wore a mask because the people couldn't look at him. You guys remember that? In a weird way, our soul is comparable to the sun. So we have this body and sun, uh, this, this body and soul, earth and sun kind of dynamic. Ain't that interesting? And kind of this body that's surrounding the, you know, the soul. Is that a weird? Is that interesting? Maybe we'll see if it's relevant later on. What's the difference between the neshamot and the nefesh? Okay, so two things. Yeah, that's a good question, and that's kind of a, an advanced question. So we're told that the human soul, human soul, is comprised of five different parts: nefesh, ruach, neshama, chaya, yechida. What that means, I don't know. Okay? Uh, what I do know is that collectively they're called a soul. Um, others call it, uh, which is an ashama. Uh, in, in, in most Jewish literature defines the totality, right? Or coins the totality as neshama. Others call it as nefesh. But they may be interchangeable because they're both elements of the same entity. One, now, by the, one is the breath of life. So, that's right. So, yeah, absolutely. Translated to soul. It's soul. But neshama neshama is also translated as soul. Uh, Now, ruach is spirit. Chaya nyechida. I don't even know what that means. That's kind of the more spiritual. And and there's this. There's this. It means there's this uh, hierarchy of more uh, spiritual, you know, more physical to more spiritual. What this means, I don't know. That's the correct answer. It's, it's not Kabbalah. I won't say Kabbalah necessarily because it is brought down in the Talmud. What we say is like this. All animals have a nefesh. Nefesh is the most physical of the spiritual. So the animal has life to it. It has emotions. Dogs have emotions. Only because dogs have emotions. Well, are emotions linked to the soul? Yeah, but not the neshama part of the soul, more the nefesh part of the soul. It's called nefesh abahamis, the animalistic soul. And so essentially we have an animalistic soul plus. We have emotions as well. We, we bereave uh, our, our tragedies as well. Animals do that as well. There's no difference. We love our children. Animals love their children. Why? That, that's linked to the lower levels of soul. And therefore, that we share with animals. So, but I'm saying it's an advanced question, and I appreciate it, uh, Dick, for uh, for asking that. But the true answer is I don't know. 
Um, and, but when I refer to neshama, I refer to the collective. Uh, because that's uh, the more uh, common uh, phraseology that we use for the totality. The neshama is the... Nish- so the, the, the Kola neshama telika. Right. Everything that has breath and is the neshama. Praise the Lord. That's right. That's in Psalms. Yeah. That's right. Uh, so, like I said, mo- the more common usage is 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 neshama. Bernie doesn't like this. No, no. I misread this originally. It had nothing to do with what you said. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let let let's. I just said I'm stupid because I mis- misinterpreted. No, Bernie, you're 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 certainly not stupid. <laughs> Okay, so let's 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 go back here to the questions that we're asking. And like I said, this is a little bit of a laborious subject. Um, I, I assure you that I had a more laborious time than each one of you guys. I assure you. Um, but I, I, it's clearly something that's important is being conveyed, and we're going to try to try to unpack this. Okay, so we asked a bunch of questions, and I think it's also good for us to even ask in general, like, why are we questioning what God did? Doesn't that seem wrong? Doesn't seem like a, you know, like we're you know we're investigating post facto. You know, we're here. God made us here. Why are we? To, who are we to question? Uh, another question. Well, we, we are supposed to be able to struggle with God, aren't we? Isn't that part yes, of the deal? We uh, are, but to kind of call into question creation of man at large, mm-hmm. it seems probably. I don't know. It feels yeah. wrong. You know, I I, I think. Yeah, maybe. Okay, maybe it's not such a good question. But I don't know. It just felt weird to me reading this, especially two and a half years. I don't know. Maybe it's not a question. Maybe you're right. Uh, yeah, but I, I think that they were clearly trying to get to some sort of practical and important lesson for us. I think it's not just about questioning God. I, you know, I think the way it's presented is presented in a way that may you know, make us think that this is just about analyzing God, and we don't do that so much. I think it's, 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 there is a bottom line lesson for us, and we'll try to uncover what that is. Um, I think also as well, if you look at the, at the, the way the question, question is phrased, it's, it's, it's phrased very bizarre. I thought someone would maybe mention this. What are the two options? Number one option, it is preferable for man to not be created more than to be created. Couldn't it have said simply, it's preferable for man to not be created? It's saying, it's, this is better than that. Just say, this is better, or that's better. It says, this is better than that, and the other side is that that's better than this. It seems like there's, you know, this understanding that both sides have upside and downside. And when you examine the risk, you actually have to look at both sides. It, it, it means it's, both sides agree that there's a potential for, uh, for either side of the argument to be true. That there's benefits of being created, there's benefits of not being created. And therefore, there has to be contrasted against each other. It's not, it's not a simple question, is it better to be created or not? Can I add something? Go ahead. Uh, the reason it, it's, we're not questioning whether God's decision to create us because we, prior to the universe being created, because of the bread of shame, we chose... Yeah. To be created, we wanted to. We wanted to, you know, we had we had something that was great, fantastic. We had hundred million dollars. We said, let's gamble it all, try to become billionaires, and get something better. 
And um, are you referring to Adam doing that, or are you referring talking to talking about pre, pre man being created? Okay, so it's so, well. So it seems like God created us, right? right. But I, I look at Adam as Adam essentially doing the same thing. Adam also like raising the stakes yeah. for all of humanity by making a very calculated decision to have a more intense form of free will, and therefore more options for success. And of course, the presence of of the potential for failure is right there and available for everyone. And that's obviously terrifying. So yes, I would agree that we, we are, means ironically, even though we conclude that it's better for us to not be created, we contributed to us being created in, in this kind of a dynamic. Uh, and I think the resolution is also problematic. So the question is problematic. The resolution is even more problematic. How can we say that God gave us a sort of end of the stick? You know, don't we say that God created us for our benefit, like you mentioned? If it's for our benefit, how do we say it's not for our benefit? And by the way, what's the implication? Right? If it's better for us to not be created more than to be created, what does it imply about us dying? Well, that was a good thing. Okay, but we exist in the world where we do die, right? So what happens when someone dies? Wonderful. Let's make celebrations. Let's have the um, the ticker ticker tape parade. Someone died. Why do we mourn someone dying? Isn't it better for him to not be created more than to be created? Well, now they're removed from that <laughs> reality, no? Isn't that a weird question? But th- that seems to be the logical implication of, of, of the res- resolution of the Talmud. It seems very logical. It seems that, hey, if man, it's better for man to not be created, then, well, then their death isn't, ab- you know, they're, they're now exonerated from this world, and therefore they're not created anymore, or they're, they're, we're undoing their life, and therefore that's a wonderful thing. So we thing. should celebrate rather than more. I don't know. Is that crazy? Well, there's, I, I'm, some, it, there's some Christian denominations yeah, who Irish. think that do celebrate uh, at funerals. I think the yeah. Irish do. Yeah, the Irish. Yeah, the that's a I didn't know that. Three-day drunk, man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I'm saying for us, you know, we we, we we mourn, you know. Is that improper? Isn't there a proverb that says, better the day of your death than the day of your birth? Yeah, so we do find that, and we find as well that it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of now what, celebration. I don't know about this, but what is that supposed to mean? I mean, is that what we're talking about here? or uh... It seems to be very much the same kind of theme, well, right? What's the context of that? I don't, I've never heard what you just yeah, we also say I, I might be the same statement, it might be a different statement that it's better for someone to go to a funeral than to go to a party, a celebration. Well, that might be slightly different because that's yeah, that's a yeah. I mean, I mean this, this is this is that's just because you're paying respects. Is that the reason? Or because feelings, or because your encounter with your own mortality. Will make you live life in a better way. Okay. Yeah. No. Maybe that, that makes. Now I'm trying to extrapolate that into this. <laughs> See, uh, the reason you mourn is not because you're concerned with the person that's deceased. You mourn for you. You're mourning because you, you're, you're missing the person. Yeah. But uh, let's 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 turn this on its head. Should we not procreate? Because isn't procreation putting creating so to speak more people? That it is, I believe it is, right? It's the very first commandment of the Torah. We all turn gay. 
that would be a way not to procreate. Uh, I don't. That violates <laughs> another. That violates another Torah. Well, I'm, I'm certainly not uh, proposing that, but no, I'm, uh, not, I'm just. I'm not either. I'm just asking a question. No, but the Torah tells us to procreate, right? But isn't that? And that's you know that's that's obviously very very uh, you know unfortunate, very sad, um, very tragic. But we're told to procreate. But isn't that like shooting ourselves in the foot from this conclusion of the Talmud? Um, and also, what if, like, what if the created is not necessarily so? I don't know if that's the right word, but maybe it's referring more to instead of just everybody who suddenly who are there, the whole act of the having the children and then they're raised. So, like, having God create somebody who's fully grown misses some of the stuff that you get when you're a child and you are you go through the womb as a parent. Well, so, so you're trying to say that creating means when the other option. What's the other option? It means not, not to go through the process. That's a very novel idea. That, that, that Are you trying to say, Andrea, yeah, that so to... The, so maybe this is referring for being created like Adam was not created as a baby, right? Okay. He's created a man versus procreation where you start with baby. So saying that's better to start with a baby? Perhaps. Maybe. I, I, yeah, I, I would agree. That's a good question. That's, that's, the, that's the, I think, the most important question. What is the def- definition of creation? Okay, and lastly, isn't it weird, by the way, they took a vote on it? Can you imagine having a debate like this and they count the votes? After two and a half years? After two and a half years? Like, that's such a democratic resolution. And I don't know. I, like, I feel like the argument's too important to just let it leave it up for a vote. Doesn't that seem bizarre? You, you said that they can't just let it go, which means that they're arguing, and the whole point of debate is to try to, or even arguing is to try to convince somebody else of your side. Right, or you're trying to get the you truth. Don't give it up. You're trying you're not, to achieve the truth. Yeah, Isn't? But if you're not going to give up your side because it's so important to you, maybe the vote's the only way that they're getting out of it. Yeah, but that's not the way the Talmud works. We, I, we very, very, there are a few exceptions, which is an angle I didn't actually investigate. Maybe I'll look at that. There are some exceptions in the Talmud where the item is put up for a vote. But literally it says counted. So I put it in parentheses on your paper. It says literally means counted. So it's not clear that it means, typically when it says counted, it means they counted the votes. Uh, they voted. Um, which is a very bizarre way to, re- to resolve a two and a half year, you know, fight to the death, so to speak as was common with the arguments of the Talmud. So just, that's, you know, I think, I think the ultimate question for us is, what's the takeaway? What is the lesson for us? And it's clearly not merely just an academic argument. There's no way they would spend so long arguing about that. And the lesson, I think, I'm saying, right now we're all depressed because, hey, it's better for us to not be created. Isn't that a depressing thought? And I think probably the, the, this, the, the, the key to the answer probably lies in the postscript. Because if you read the postscript, what does it say in the postscript? Now that he was indeed created, he should contemplate his actions. Alternatively, he should scrutinize his actions. So Steve asks, hey, just say something more broad. Say, like, he should do the Torah, or he should do what's right, he should be good, he should be moral, he should be honest. Why, why does it talk specifically about his examining or contemplating or scrutinizing, inspecting his actions? <clears throat> that seems to be a very narrow uh, area of focus, which is, while important, not necessarily, you know, the be-all, end-all. That's one question. But let me ask you guys a question. Isn't that lesson irrespective of the previous debate? Isn't it good behavior to inspect your actions, to make sure you're behaving properly, irrespective of whether or not it's better for us to be around or not? I mean, why is this a postscript 
to the argument. It's true regardless of whether or not it's better for us to be created or not to be created that we should inspect our actions. Why is this the punchline? Okay, now that you were created, inspect your actions, contemplate your actions, scrutinize your actions. It, it seems to be something entirely different. So it's better that we not, according to them, that we not be here, but yet, even though it's better that we not here, we still are here. Now that's interesting. I'm sorry, what did you say? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just spacing out. I apologize. Can you say that again? No, I'm just saying. Yeah. So, like, how, how to deal with an imperfect situation? Right. Okay. So, so I think clearly. You gotta play the hand you're yes, you got to play the hand you're given. Yeah. Um, I think clearly what we can say for sure after 18 questions, it's a very difficult Talmudic piece to navigate. The secret of the lesson that is being imparted here is not readily apparent. It's not on the surface. It's not an easy one to scoop up and just take it with us and right. It's not easy. Uh, that's for sure. And I, I even found with the commentators, I was spending a long time trying to find some commentator that really like goes through this and clearly defines what we're talking about and what the lesson for us is. And I found that uh, there's a lot of creative methods, creative methods, if you will, of trying to understand this. And not necessarily ones that we would be okay with as being the simple understanding of the lesson. For example... The Marsha. Marsha is one of the great commentators in the Talmud, uh, 16th, 15th and 16th century. So very, very ancient commentary. And the fundamental commentary to go to on any kind of lesson like this, any kind of agadic, what we call agadic lesson, where the lesson of the Talmud is not readily apparent, where it's being masked, um, and the true understanding is not clear and present, the, the Marsha is the first place to go. And he says like this, Listen to this, guys. It's so baffling. It's so mind-blowing. Like this. We know that there are 248 positive mitzvahs. 248 times the Torah says, do this. Conversely, there's 365 negative mitzvahs. The Torah says, do not do this. So 117 more negative mitzvahs than positive mitzvahs. Now, if we are created, what does that do? That creates an opportunity to do mitzvahs. There's 248 opportunities for us. On one hand. On the other hand, there's now 365 potential pitfalls for us. It's bad odds. It's bad odds, exactly. <laughs> there's, you know, there's more opportunity for failure than for success. Now, if we weren't created well, then we wouldn't have done any of the, We can't possibly do any negative. We can't transgress at all. There's no, there's no opportunity for failure, right? That was my original point. We had 100% probability prior to creating the world, just our, our soul, of having 100% probability of keeping that. Yeah. And then we go with horrible odds to either lose it totally or get something better. That's right. It's statistically a bad investment. And what, are the, what does he say? What does he say? They counted. They counted. It's not a vote. They actually did the mathematics. They said, okay, let's count the negative mitzvahs. 365 and only 248. Right? So the mathematics, as Dan clearly elucidated, 
right? They're stacked against us. The odds are not in our favor. Thus, what he says is like this. We have the guarantee of 365 negative prohibitions that we will not transgress if we're not created. Indeed, we don't have the, we don't have the opportunity for 248, but 365 is more than 248. Now that we're created, okay, we could potentially do 248, but also we could potentially, unfortunately, transgress 365. And that's more. That's what he says. And this is mind-blowing for a bunch of reasons. Uh, number one, let's say we weren't created. Fantastic. You fulfill 365 mitzvahs. Really? How do you fulfill mitzvahs? How, how do you fulfill a mitzvah of not transgressing a prohibition if you had no opportunity to transgress? The mere fact that I'm not sinning right now or that someone who's dead is not sinning, is that so wonderful? If I have no opportunity to sin, is that, is that really a mitzvah? And additionally, I'll give you guys an example here. Stalin, been dead for 62 years. What's that? Stalin. Stalin's been dead for two, 62 years. What a great guy. He, ha- he hasn't sinned in 62 years. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> 70 years for the other guy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Is that really something so remarkable that if you're not around, you have no opportunity to sin, now it's a wonderful thing. Right? Let's get out the trumpets and celebrate the accomplishment of not sinning. Well, you can sin if you don't sin. Right? Well, in truth, the Talmud does say like this. If someone is sedentary, doing nothing, and not sinning, he gets reward as if he did a mitzvah, fulfilled a mitzvah. The Talmud, the book of Kiddushin, the book that talks about marriage, I think it's 39b, it might be 40b, I don't remember exactly. 39 and 40b. All the way to the bottom. If someone does nothing and doesn't sin, it's as if they fulfilled a mitzvah. If you read that and you stopped, you'd be great. If you just read one more line, it makes it problematic. Why? Because it says, hey, if someone has the opportunity to sin and they don't sin, well, then it's as if they fulfilled a mitzvah. But if someone does not have an opportunity to, to sin, then it's no big deal that he didn't sin. So what does it mean that if we weren't created, it would be so wonderful? Guaranteed 365. You're not guaranteed anything. Because you're guaranteed zero, because you didn't have opportunity to do any, 365 sins. Therefore, your withholding from sinning accounts for nothing. So how do we say that this is the It's so difficult to understand that this would be the interpretation of, of our Talmud, what the Marashah says. And by the way, I tell you guys like this. Imagine this was what they were arguing about. If this was the, the entire context of their argument, wouldn't they resolve it in two and a half hours? Just count. Count, count, count. How many mitzvahs? Are oh, okay, count. If it's just about counting the mitzvahs, isn't that a simple resolution? There's more negative mitzvahs than positive mitzvahs. Simple. Okay, it's better for us to not be around because then we're guaranteed to fulfill 365. And yes, indeed, we have we don't have the opportunity for 248, but who cares? We 365 is better. Uh, you give I'm, more weight to the positive than the negative? Mm, <laughs> no, I'm not saying that. I'm just I'm giving weight to opportunity. I know, but so like you're saying, geez. Running a marathon. You know, runners run a marathon so that they can finish. Exactly. Because they're running. And, then they, it's, it's and, 
Yeah, it means, and, and if you didn't run it, but let's say you took your car and drove to the end, you're like, oh, I'm at the end. I'm at the finish line. Look at me. Right? Well, then no. If, if you didn't have to go through the challenges and obstacles of getting there, the fact that you got there means nothing. You know? Exactly. So the fact that I wouldn't have transgressed 365, how could that be so valuable? It's very difficult to understand in that context. Now, I want to I make this point very abundantly clear. I, and none of us really here, have the gumption to disagree with the Marsha. We're not able to do that. He knew more Torah than 500 lifetimes of each one of us put together. It's not possible for us to argue with him. Uh, and that same Marsha, by the way, we have talked about in this particular classroom. And he is uh, one of the great scholars, and his insights uh, are not ones that we could disagree with. But I think that it's still very hard to take this as a simple understanding of our Talmud. Uh, I found also that this Talmud uh, is, rep- is understood in other ways that are very, very distant from the simplistic or the what we would say is the natural understanding of what's really going on. Um, I'm not going to talk about the other interpretations that I found, but trust me when I say it's not something that's going to appease our interest in understanding this Talmud. Go ahead, Leslie. I have a question. Now, we're talking about man being created. Before man, there were all the animals. If man wasn't created, as the story goes, then how would the animals take care of each other to survive? Well, this is, I, I think, I think what's, what, Steve, what Steve mentioned in the beginning is important. That, that I think that if we weren't created, you know, it's the ABCs of Jewish philosophy is that the world is about us. However you want to understand the exact focus of the world, it's about humanity. And if humanity is not created, then the world has no purpose. That's clear. Uh, Right, so, 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 it's not, so it's not about the animals. I want to give you guys an approach, just what I think is probably the simplest understanding. Um, it was simplest. <laughs> simplest is relative. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think the, you know, pro- and try to work through this. Uh, and it's, it's, not, it's not distant from what we, we have been discussing until uh, now. So like this, we ask the question, is death really that wonderful? Is death a good thing? in light of the conclusion of this Talmud. So, uh, simply we say, no, right? Death is a terrible thing. Yeah, I'll show you in the Talmud, elsewhere. <laughs> the Talmud says that it depends who's dying. If a really wicked person dies, well, that's a wonderful thing for him and for the whole world. Because of that person's sins, they're accumulative. The more sins someone does, the worse it is for their soul. So if they die and they are uh, they're taking away the opportunity to sin, well then it's a good thing for them. It's beneficial for them. And it's beneficial for the world because the world suffers as well. As opposed to the death for the righteous, well that's bad for them because they had more opportunity to do more mitzvahs. And it's bad for the world because the world right, benefits greatly from having good, upstanding, moral, kind, benevolent, uh, responsible people in the world. So Indeed, our Talmud, or, or this whole 
dilemma of is life good or bad, it's not cookie cutter. It's not for everyone. It's you know, it's 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 not universal. It really ought to depend upon what the result is of someone's life. And by the way, the Tosfos commentary explains that this whole debate is only at birth. It's a debate. Is it better for someone to be born at birth? But after someone's lived a life, we can look back and see if this person is righteous, of course it's better for them to be created. And if this person was wicked, of course it's better for them to not be created. No one ever would agree about that. The question is, if we are to try to prognosticate at the point of beginning of this journey, at birth, and we have to try to project what's their life going to be like in the future, well, then we can really have a debate. What's the likelihood of this person living a life that when it's over, will say that their death is a bad thing? Because the more time they have here, the more opportunity they have, the more missions they're going to do. Or, unfortunately, we see there are people that live their lives mindlessly, and these are the people that it's better for them to have not come here because they didn't really improve, and they regressed. So that's why we can see, oh, now it's starting to come into picture. Life is not just terrible, bad, horrible, we're all suffering. No. Life could be fantastically wonderful, but it could also be really bad. And this Talmud is trying to maybe gain a like a, a statistics of, of all of humanity and say, okay, what is the likelihood? Is it better this or better than that? Of course, both sides have good to it. Of course, there are going to be people that are righteous, there are going to be people that are wicked. So for some people, it's certainly better to be around. Some people, it's certainly better to not be around. But the totality, the aggregate, humanity at large, right? what is the direction? What is the uh, uh, the, the most likely result? Well, that's already a much different question. And that maybe demands a long time to analyze. Well, let's look at history and see how are people behaving throughout history. Let's look at people, the entire nation, right? And try to examine a lot of different factors, a multitude of factors there. It's not a simple question to answer. Yeah, so clearly it's not an easy question to answer. Your, your point is, is well taken, that the world, the dynamic world, where we have the righteous and the wicked coexisting creates more opportunity for the righteous to be righteous than the wicked to be wicked. You know, so you know, there's an exponential element to someone's direction of life. You know, and if someone's righteous in a sea of wickedness, well, their righteous gets amplified because they're working in opposition to the world around them. Uh, as opposed to the opposite. If someone is wicked in the sea of righteousness, well, that is that much worse, because you had such, so many good role models, and then you still chose uh, a path of wickedness. Interesting point. So I, I think that, you know, that we see the germinations uh, of maybe an insight as to what really they're arguing about. And I want to uh, talk about a point that we have discussed, or that was mentioned several times here. What does it mean the man to be created? What would the alternative be like? Would it be nothing? 
So what is a creation of man? It's the unity of body and soul. It's this, this, you know, this dynamic reality that we have, that we have the body married to the soul. Soul married to the body. They're linked together. If we weren't created, which one of them would we have? Soul. We'd have just a soul. How do I know that? Because the soul precedes man. The soul exists way before man. Your soul is a really old soul. Your body is, I don't know, 20 years, 50 years, 90 years. However old you are, that's how old your body is. That's how old your humanity is, your body and soul get together. But your soul predates your body by thousands of years. So if man wasn't created, man wouldn't be a fusion of body and soul, but the soul would still be in existence. Uh, so... Well, you'd have a soul. So it means it wouldn't be nothing. It would be a soul and, you know, a, 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 but not linked to a body. There's no conflict. That's right. There's no friction. There's no... Why are you saying that there'd be a soul if man wasn't created? Well, because the definition of man is body and soul, and the soul predates the body. That's, that's what the source we're going to talk about. Yeah, because I think that body, the definition, I'm saying hum, human, man, Adam, as that is body and soul. We have sources for that. Um, so if the body and soul were, if 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 if, hu, if human was not created, then the body and soul would not be united. But what would exist? That that existed before the unity of body and soul would exist. That that came post facto would not exist. Thus, the soul would exist. The body would not. Well, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, how do you know that? What what says that the soul was preceded the body? Okay. I mean, uh, it, couldn't they have come simultaneously? It could be, but the reality is not like that. And I'll I'll show you my sources. Um, and I'll talk, I have one source that maybe you guys have heard of, and then there's another source that I don't believe anyone has heard of because. I found it last night, and it was the most frightening thing I've read in a long time. Um, prepare to be frightened, everyone. Um, so let's start with the source that maybe everyone knows to answer your question, Steve. Uh, and what do you guys know about the reality of the soul or the child in utero? What do we know about that? Some very famous Talmudic teachings about a soul, a child in utero. They know the old Torah. They see from one end of the world to the other end of the world. There's this candle lit upon their far, their head. What that means? I don't know. Good question. Ideas. Huh? Ideas. <laughs> um, Sorry. And then there's this uh, unity of body and soul, which is not pleasant at all. And the soul suddenly gets, uh, or the body envelops the soul, and the soul suffers because its influence is not as strong. Forget the whole Torah, for example. We know there's an angel comes hits in the mouth, right? Can you think of a better vocation, maybe, than hitting babies? Isn't that evil? <laughs> Doesn't it sound bad? Soul number, I don't know, 589. What's your job? I hit babies. What? But anyway, that's what the Talmud says, that this, this soul, the angel comes and smacks the baby in the mouth. And why in the mouth? Do you know why it's in the mouth? Mouth is the touch point of body and soul. Right? Our speech is our manifestation of our humanity. 
where our body and soul meet. Speech is not entirely physical. It's not entirely spiritual. It's a fusion of both, like us at large. The angel comes and connects the body and soul at the point of birth. The soul was in existence prior, therefore knew the whole Torah, an unhindered soul. It's soft one in the, in the world. It was not limited by the, the, you know, the rigid limitations of physicality. Uh, you know, that's what we knew, I knew till yesterday. So therefore, that, that proves that the soul exists before the body. Uh, and the soul doesn't like it. It's not a pleasant unity because the soul, you know, is suddenly drowned out by the body. And that's the world we live in. So that's the understanding of body, uh, body and soul unity and the soul before the body. But then I found a much lengthier, lengthier description of all the details of the soul and the body and the unity. From before, the, before conception, during gestation, at birth, and at death. Here goes. Okay. Now, this is a lightly edited and abridged version of it because I took out some of the themes which I thought maybe wouldn't be exactly germane to us. And it starts like this. What's the history of souls? This is from the Midrash in the book of Piku, in the Parsha of Pekude. Uh, this is the very last of the Parshas in the book of Exodus. And we find a very, very long and very interesting and very frightening description of the insertion of soul and body or the unity of soul and body before, during, and afterwards. You should know that all the souls that were from the times of Adam until the end of all of humanity were all created in the six days of creation. So, case settled. The souls preceded our body, clearly. Uh, And all of them were by Mount Sinai. Now, ain't that interesting? The idea of, uh, of, of the souls of all, all of humanity were all at Sinai. And that's why right, uh, uh, Moses in his last uh, testament that he gives to the Jewish people, he says that I'm talking not only to the people that are here today, but the people that were, are going to come in the future because they were part of the experience at Sinai. There's a little bit of a discussion at, 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 at conception. So what happens at conception? The Almighty takes this drop and he tells and he forecast what's going to be in the future. Is this a boy or a girl? Is this someone who's strong or weak? Is someone who's wealthy or poor? Tall or short? Beautiful, handsome, like everyone here today. Or not so handsome? Thick or thin? Uh, yeah. Wow, all that's determined. But if they're righteous or wicked, it's not determined. That's in the hands of every, every person. Fine. Okay. Then the Almighty uh, hints to the angel who's in charge of souls and tells them like this bring me soul X that's in Gan Eden, it's in the Garden of Eden whose name is X, who looks like this not all souls are created equal and the angel runs and gets it and brings the, the soul in front of the Almighty And when the, end, when the soul comes, the, the soul bows down and prostrates itself in front of the Almighty. And that time, the, the Almighty tells the soul, go in to this drop. Right? This drop, this uh, 
primordial biological matter. Go into it. And what does the soul respond? This is the first insight as to whether or not this is wonderful or not. What does the soul say? Master of the world! I'm happy where I am right now! Why change a good thing? The day that you created, since you created me, I've been there, right? I've been there since you, since the beginning. Why, why, what, what was wrong till now? Why are you going to take me and put me into this putrid soul? I'm holy, I'm pure. And you're going you're gonna to do this? You're going to decree that upon me? So what does the Almighty respond? I want to highlight this response as well, because it'll be relevant to what we talk about later. The Almighty responds to the, to the soul. The world that I'm going to enter you into, it's better than the world that you're in now. And the only reason why I created you was to be put into this drop. So the angel, the, the, the soul, and the Almighty have a disagreement. The soul says, I don't want to go into this drop. The Almighty says, it's better for you. How is that possible? And not only that, let's, let's try to bring it back to our conversation. When we say it's better for man to not be created, more than to be created... Whose perspective are we analyzing? Our own perspective. The Almighty disagrees with us. That's clearly evident. The soul says, I don't want to go to this world. I says, no, no, it's better for you. What's, what, what's the rationale? How is it possible that, we, that the soul does not agree with the Almighty? What's the difference? The Almighty says, it's better for us to be here. And that's why we're here. Clearly, it never knows that. But for us, we say it's not better for us. How is that possible? How is there a disagreement between the, the two money managers, so to speak, the two risk analysts? The Almighty says it's better for us to be here, and the soul says it's no, it's worse for us. Very interesting point. Because it, means it was clear that we're talking from man's perspective, but now we see that God disagrees, not only in practice, but even in, in, in the idea, in the ideology. Okay. So the Almighty says it's better. So the, but the soul still resists. Right away, the Almighty thrusts the soul in against their will. So we have a soul kicking and streaming. And it's being forced in against its will. And the, the angel comes back and takes the soul and plunges it into the belly of the mother. That's the soul preconception. And what happens? The soul's there in the mother. The soul's miserable. Doesn't like it. And they arrange for two angels that guard him. They shouldn't leave. Shouldn't escape. The soul's like, hey, I'll, I'll just dodge out of this. No, there's two angels sent there to, keep, to maintain this. House arrest. House arrest. <laughs> and they place him in there. Utero arrest. <laughs> House arrest. <laughs> and they place a candle lit on his head, which by the way is an interesting thing, candles, right, we know we have candles within the Shum, every time we, there's, there's the yard side candles, very interesting parallels, child sees one of them, what's the other one, all that, we already had the overlap and now every day, the angel takes the soul for a little spatzir, as they say in Yiddish, little, little, little stroll the angel takes him out and brings him to Ganeda, brings him to the Garden of Eden and shows him all the righteous tzaddikim that are sitting there, and their crowns are on their heads. Splendor and glory. And the angel says to the soul, do you know who these people are? 
They're going for a tour. Tour of heaven. Can you imagine? This little, uh, this little brand new little fetus or little angel, little, not little angel, little soul, brand new soul that was just right now thrust against his will kicking, is going down with the angel for a little tour. They go to the Garden of Eden. This I saw about the first time. This is mind-blowing to me. They go to the, the Garden of Eden and they say, hey, who are these people? So what does the soul respond? I don't know. So the angel tells them, I'll tell you who these people are. These people, they're exactly like you. They started off their life and they were created in their mother's belly, mother's stomach, and they went into the world and they observed the Torah and the mitzvahs and therefore they merited and they were ushered into the goodness that you see them in now. You should know, the angel continues to the soul, that you are going to go into the world and if you merit and observe the Torah of the Almighty, you too will be ushered into Gan Eden. And you too will be part of this wonderful fraternity. But if not, you should know, and I'll show you another place. That's the morning exercise of the soul. In the evening. The, almighty, the, the angel takes the soul, hands the hand, right? Holds him. And says, let's bring you to Gehenna. I remember important Gehenna, the Jewish Gehenna is very different than the Christian eternal damnation. We don't believe in that. But we do believe in the idea of purgatory. And he shows them all the wicked people that are in Gehenna. And he sees that there is these angels of persecution that are hitting these people with, what describes it, it says, with uh, sticks of fire. And they have no mercy on them. And the angel says to the very same soul, do you know who these people are? He says, no, I don't know who these people are. He says, these people, they were exactly like you. They too were a new soul. They too didn't want to go to the body. They too were put in the mother's stomach. They too were born in the world. However, but they did not observe the Torah and the laws of the Almighty. Therefore, they got this. They had to be cleansed in this way. And you should know, continues the angel, you also are going to, uh, uh, you also are going to be born, and you should be at side that can be, not be a rush. You should be righteous and not be wicked. And you should live uh, for Olam Abba. And the angel takes him from the morning to the night and shows them, this is also very interesting, he shows them the place where the child's going to die, the place where he's going to be buried, and he shows them the whole world, and he shows them the righteous people, he shows them the wicked people, shows them everything. And the and evening puts him back in his mother's tummy. Finally, after nine years, uh, nine months, sorry, not nine years. That's terrifying for every woman. <laughs> I don't know if we'd have so many humans out there if it took nine years. Finally, the time for the child to be born, the same angel, the same chaperone that was, cho- that was taking him around and showing him all the sights, Tells him, your time has come to be born. Once again, the child or the angel, the soul protests. What's wrong? What's wrong with the way I am right now? Like, why are you going to bring me the world? And the angel responds with the, with, with the famous statement, you should know, my son, that against your will you're created, against the will you're born, against, the will you're di- against your will you die, and against your will you, have, you are forced to give an accounting 
of your life and actions. Once again, a child does not want to leave, the, the soul does not want to be born until the angel hits him, extinguishes the, 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 the candle on top of his head, and pushes him out into the world against his will. And then it talks about why he's, the child's crying. The child's always crying at the beginning. I, I skipped that out. There's, and then the seven stages of life. The child starts off as being a king, but then he goes to become a, a pig. And just seven stages in life. Very interesting. Like, there's a lot of interesting stuff. I just was so long. I wanted to, you know, for the sake of brevity. Child lives his whole life. Right? Oh, by the way, he puts, sends him out and he forgets everything. As. The child lives his whole life, and his time comes to pass. And the very same angel comes to him and says, you remember me? He says, yeah, I remember you. Why did you come here today? Well, why is today different than old days? Angel responds, I take you out of this world because your time has come. Child, the, right away, the, the soul says, no, he starts crying. What's wrong with this world? I like this world. And, he's, and he's, the soul is crying and his voice goes from one end of the world to the other end of the world and no one hears it. One's getting very bizarre. There's only one animal that hears it. That's the tarnagal. That's the, the rooster. Rooster's the only one that hears that. Very, I don't know what that means. I just put that in there. I, I, I don't know. And the... Soul tells the angel, you already took me out of two worlds. You took me out of the world uh, that I was in and you put me into the drop and then you took me out of that world and you put me in this world. Right? Don't take me out of this world. I'm very happy in this world. And the angel responds with the same thing he's responded at the beginning. Against your will, I already told you, against your will you're created, against your will you're born, against your will you live, against your will you die, and against your will you are compelled to give an accounting for your life. Wow. To me, like I read that, whoa, it's like terrifying. Uh, and I think this illuminates the risk that life is. And child starts off his life and he could go either way. And you know, that there's amazing things someone can accomplish. Yet there's amazing uh, mistakes that someone could do and they'll have to suffer the consequence. And like any risk, there's the upside and the downside. However, not, unlike any risk, we don't have a say as to whether or not we're in this risk. We don't have a say. It's against our will. And you know what? If, if our soul had a say, it would opt to not leave, not be inserted into the drop, not be put in the mother's tummy, not to be born, and not to die. And by the way, I found uh, uh, additionally, um, on that particular mission of against your will you're born, against your creator, against your will you're formed, against your will you live, against your will you die, there's an amazing Rashi that kind of uh, harkens, echoes this particular Midrash, and it tells us, additionally, every night when someone is asleep, their soul essentially wants to escape. And the Almighty says, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Right? Why? The morning, one of the morning prayers is that we tell the Almighty that we deposited our soul with you and you gave it back to us. And every time, every night, our soul says to the Almighty, okay, I'm done. Extract me out of this misery. And 
the Almighty says, well, no, I actually pledged to your human that I'm not gonna dis- I'm not gonna take you away, and I have to keep my promises. Sorry. Uh, but th- you know that that's 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 what life is. It's this risk, and it's a risk that we can't opt out of. And the merits of the risk really warrant the schools of Shammai to grapple with for two and a half years. There's really a lot that is to be discussed here. Everything, everything about a soul. What's a soul? What are the, all the opportunities that the world affords, for good and for bad? All of them have to be weighed, and we have to actually try to find, you know, in our discussion, a, you know, a, a, a conclusion as to is it better or is it worse? And the opportunities are, are fantastic, but the, the opportunities for failure are also fantastic. And, you know, in our life, the is going to determine our life is going to determine what's beneficial, detrimental for us to be to be born. And there's a disagreement between God and the and the and the, and the soul. God says it's wonderful, it's better than the other world, and our soul's hesitant, it's fearful of of of, of this of this risk. And I'll tell you guys more thing. I'll tell you guys more. There are opportunities that are only afforded to us in this world. The Mishnah says, famous Mishnah. We might have mentioned it once in in passing. It's better to have one second in this world than all of the spiritual worlds. Why? Because in a certain element, in a certain aspect of, that this world affords to us, there are things that we can only get in this world, and therefore, this world is entirely beneficial. This is the world of change, of growth, of development, of opportunity. Our soul, yeah, it's to have a really nice time gallivanting in the higher realms, but it can't grow. It can't change. It can't improve. It can't do tikkun olam. It's limited. This is a world where there's a good argument to be made. It's better for us to be created than for us to not be created. Additionally, there's the flip side. There is a very good argument to be made. It's better for us to not be created. You know why? Yes, we, we lose an opportunity to grow, but our soul will maintain its purity. Our soul will not be sullied, will not be uh, blemished, and will not need to be rehabilitated after we screw it up. And this is a two and a half year argument because it's, it's a really serious matter. And they really examined every aspect and every angle of this issue. You know, they examined every single mitzvah and the various challenges that someone's going to face in trying to perform those mitzvahs. They examined man's qualities and the likelihood of their capacity to overcome those inclinations and those opportunities for sin. There's a lot really to unpack here. And you know what they concluded? We don't know what, what contributed to the conclusion, but the collective conclusion was that it's a risk that we don't want. We don't want it. We'd rather not be created, not have the opportunity for greatness, and not have the potential pitfalls of failure. What contributes to the conclusion is not a narrow question, but I want to maybe suggest an idea of what maybe contributed to the conclusion. We have a Mishnah in, uh, in the Chapters of the Fathers, the book of the Talmud that deals with ethics and philosophy, and it says as follows. I want everyone to just listen to the nuances of this Mishnah. Run away from sin. Chase even a small mitzvah 
and run away from sin. Don't say, oh, I'm only chasing the big mitzvahs. Chase even a small mitzvah like you would chase a big mitzvah and run away from sin. It's crea- this, this Mishnah creates a dynamic for us. It gives us insight as to what is the default state of man. What is the most likely result of any sort of engagement? The most likely result is that that was before we'll maintain, we maintain. The default status is most likely. Change is harder than stagnation. I'll give you guys an example. Just take, it, take this discussion from the higher realms to a very practical realm. So everyone here has a cell phone, right? Everyone, is everyone here doesn't have a smartphone? Okay, we got this. Okay. Um, you've seen them, okay. So um, there's 400 million iPhones in use, today, in use today. Huh? Now, a couple of years ago, there was a strategic decision done by Apple, the company that makes iPhones, to create something called Apple Maps, which is essentially a, a Maps application that allows someone to put in a destination and get turn-by-turn navigation towards that destination. Somebody end up in a quarry? Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, oh, yeah. before that, they had Google Maps. Mm-hmm. Google Maps is the most accurate, the most detailed Maps application the world has ever seen. They decided, Apple decided, based upon a certain strategic initiative, they decided that we're going to do our own Apple Maps. And according to everyone, even the most rabid Apple fanboys, as they're called, Google Maps is decidedly better. However, what they did was, they put that the default, if you do nothing... The default is that you have Apple Maps. And now we can look a couple years later and see how many people went to their phone and said, okay, I want to just change the default from Apple Maps to Google Maps. 100 million. Yeah. 100 million people did that. So here is a good example as to the power of the default. You have something which is objectively a better product, a better experience. With minimal effort, you can get that experience. However, if you do nothing, you'll be left with the less optimal option. And we find that 75% of the people opted to maintain to stay with the default over changing and going to the more uh, optimized option. Well, it's not scary, but change requires effort. But, but it is scary to the point, like the, the soul doesn't want to change anything. That's what, they, that's what it knew. Then when it knew something else, it didn't want to change it again. Okay, oh, that's, that's very interesting. That means we see that we are resistant to change. That's right. And what does the mission tell us? The mission tells us you have to chase even a minor mitzvah. And you have to run away from sin. What does that tell us about mitzvahs versus sins? 
you have to chase a mitzvah, it's running away from you. You have to escape from sin, it's chasing you. What this Mishnah is telling us, that the body and soul dynamic, right? who is in pole position? Who is dominant in this paradigm? The body, absolutely. The body is the default. I'll give you guys an example. If I go and punch you in the arm, you'll, f- you'll feel it. If you, if you don't eat for a day, you're hungry. If you don't study Torah for a day, you feel nothing. If, someone ble- if your soul gets blemished, you don't, f- you don't have a bruise from blemished souls. What does that tell us? Our body is dominant and our soul is secondary. Thus, if you are to project into the future and you were to say, what are the odds of the soul after a long and productive and fruitful life, what are the odds of the soul to emerge in control of this person's destiny? Is that more or less likely than the body maintaining its dominance over the person's identity? It's less likely, exactly. I think what perhaps contributed to that conclusion was the fact that, yes, there's so much opportunity for a soul to influence uh, who we are. Of course. But the body is there, and the body is dominant. The body is the default. And you know what? The body, the sins are chasing us, the mitzvahs are running away from us. We have to mobilize and galvanize ourselves to action if we are to succeed in life. If we do nothing, if we stay the course, well, then it's better for us to have not been created. Now, that's the conclusion, and that's depressing. And you tell us, uh, uh, Rabbi, we just had a, an hour and a half discussion, and you told us that most likely we're going to be failures in life. <laughs> we feel terrible. Now, I want to point out that everyone here, everyone here has chosen to come and spend their Sunday morning trying to learn about Torah, to learn about how to improve their character, how to become a better person. It's very likely that for people of our ilk, indeed, it's maybe better that we would have been created. We are the people that are saying it's important for us to try to improve, to change. We're not content with our body-soul dynamic. We want to improve. We want to find uh, ways for our soul to be expressed in our lives. But do you think we are the majority or the minority? We're in the we're the minority. They most people are in the default, and I, I think that some sort of uh, analysis of our the kind that we're doing right now was done by the Stuzel Shammai Hill after many years of really analyzing this question very seriously and thoughtfully. They came to the conclusion: yes, it may be the, the likelihood of man changing, or in the aggregate of mankind changing, is is unlikely. It's not less likely than, than otherwise. Well, how do we deal with these, all these people in sub-Sahara Africa distant, and the flies are coming? And <laughs> where are they going to improve? Well, I'm saying everyone is presented in a, in a certain area, a certain arena, if you will, of free will choices. Just because you, are, you grew up disadvantaged, you know, the people in sub-Saharan Africa, many of them are living better than teens lived 100 years ago. Many of them have running water. They have toilets. They have smartphones. 
they have access to information. It means yes, they're they are they are dis, they're, 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 they're disadvantageous compared to people living in the United States or in developed countries, of course. But it doesn't mean that they don't have opportunities for free will. It doesn't mean that the opportunity for greatness is beyond them, or the presence, the ever presence of failure uh, overshadows their life as well. So yes, of course, you could say, hell, you know, they have less opportunity for uh, material greatness, but does that mean they have less opportunity for spiritual greatness? I don't know if we can make that argument. They have, a, they have a soul as well, and they have a body, and they have that dynamic and that conflict. And they too, what's demanded upon them is what's demanded upon every soul. They too went through that pre-birth tour, and they too were exhorted to become great people. Then isn't part of the answer to Bernie's question, and, and I think maybe this is part of what you're saying, uh, is it's us... We are the light to them. If we're the light to the nations, to inspire them to improve. To yeah, but all to and not not just people in Sub-Saharan Africa. People in the, uh, in the entire world, right? Yeah. You know, and and, uh, and we're supposed to be the smallest of peoples. You just means said uh, more is the, the more is demanded of us. That's go right. To the default. So That's right. We are supposed to set the example. And if you actually you mean Jews, yes. And if you actually Jews, look, you look. You look at uh, at history. It's very interesting. It'll be a fascinating discussion to look at history and see what are the, you know, the groundbreaking shifts in focus and in attitude that the world has taken. And we do see that there has been a tremendous shift towards morality. What we would consider basic morality today wasn't so basic. It wasn't so moral two thousand years ago. So there are these generational changes uh, that are very remarkable. You know. So, you know, there's an interesting uh, angle uh, to that as well. Now, I want to look, examine quickly before we, before we disband them here. I want to look at the, I think, per- perhaps the most uh, crucial, the most practical part of this Talmud for us. The Talmud says, yes, indeed. In all likelihood, for the vast majority of humanity, it's preferable to not be created more than to be treated. However, it gives us a postscript. Now that we were indeed created, they should con- we should contemplate our actions or we should scrutinize our actions. Now, what does it mean to contemplate your actions? What does it mean to scrutinize your actions? Well, scrutinize your behavior. Scrutinize. Yeah. So look at something carefully. Scrutinize. What did you do? Huh? What should you do? Okay, so we find in the, uh, we find in the, uh, in the, in the famous book of, of Jewish philosophy and ethics, the, the path of the just. Lutzato. He takes our Talmud and he expands it in one of way. Now, I want to read it here very quickly here. If someone wants to become great, he does it, what do you got to do? Two things you got to do. Number one, you have to examine what is good and what is evil in the world. What are the things that someone should try to aspire to and what are the things that someone should try to withhold from, to refrain from? That's the first thing you got to do. Number two, you have to look at your actions, your behavior, and say, does it fall into this category or that category? You have to see if your deeds are good or evil. What he's saying is like this. When we behave, we have to... What's the question of free will? Do I do this or do I do that? What ought to determine what I choose? Does it fit into the category of good or bad? These... Simple steps are the path to greatness. 
Number one, I, I, I make a catalog of goodness and I make a catalog of evil, of bad. Number two, when I behave, during the action I ask, is it good or is it bad? And post facto, I examine my actions after I have performed them and I recall and I examine and I weigh them on this scale. Was it good or was it bad? These simple steps, says Lutzato, are the instructions and the ingredients of greatness in life. And by the way, after I do something and I examine was it good or bad, I correct it. I say, oh, this is what means to contemplate your actions. If you find within your actions, post facto, that you made a mistake, I investigate and determine what should I have done next time to make sure that I don't make the same mistake. And here's where he invokes our Talmud. This is, by the way, from the book of chapters uh, of Path of the Just, Mesilati uh, Sharim, chapter 3, right at the beginning. Quote, Our sages of blessed memory were referring to this when they said, it would have been better for a person to not have been created more than to be created. Now that he's created, he should examine his deeds or he should scrutinize his deeds. What is these two things of examining your deeds and scrutinizing your deeds? These two terms are in reality two very beneficial and useful teachings. When we examine our deeds, that entails the overall investigation of one's actions to determine whether or not those deeds should have been done. Right? You look and say, okay, what have I done in the past year? What have I done in the past month? What have I done in the past week? What have I done today? Were they good or were they bad? And if I find that they are bad, how do I correct them? To scrutinize, what does it mean to scrutinize? What is it? To look even at the good deeds. Even at the good deeds, I have to investigate and observe if those deeds contain any aspect which is part of the bad. And in summation, he concludes, you know, I, want, I encourage everyone to get their hands on, a, on chapter 3 of this, of this book because it's fantastic. And I'm going through it very quickly. So what, what Path of the Just. In summation, a person must survey all his deeds and oversee all his ways in order to remove any bad tendency or trait, let alone a sin or a transgression. It is also necessary that a man be meticulous. Man, by the way, doesn't mean man. It means mankind, humanity to meticulous in his ways and weigh them every single day, just like no different than merchants, business people, who assess all their business dealings to, to make sure that they don't fail. If you have a business, if you have a for-profit enterprise, right, it's the basics of accounting to try to examine, to, you know, to get spreadsheets. and right. Where are the spreadsheets of our soul? Where are the spreadsheets of our life? This is it. This is our lesson. Now that we're created, we've got the shorter end of the stick from our perspective. Indeed, it's better for us to have not been created. But now, what is the only tactic, what's the only strategies and tactics that we can employ to make the best of a bad situation? Make spreadsheets for our soul. Take life seriously. Really investigate our actions. Are we sinning? Are we making mistakes? Are we investing our life and our focus on things that are trivial and passing? Or are we really living? Are we investing in our future? Are we 
taking the time to make sure that our soul is also happy with what we're doing in our lives. Are we living just for our body or also incorporating our soul? Is that forgotten? Are we, are we fulfilling the worst fears of our souls when our soul was so terrified of entering this world? Are we validating its fears or not? That kind of spiritual sp- spreadsheet, that is the way to ensure that our life is not the terrible fear that our soul was terrified of. This attitude, right, this postscript, this lesson, this is what's relevant to us. This is how it's relevant to us. We see the big picture. We see how volatile our life is and how easy it is for us to be failures. How easy it is for us to just stay with the default and just let the sins overwhelm us and not take the time and effort, be lazy and not chase those mitzvahs. And what happens, right? Our soul, that's what our soul was terrified. It didn't want to be placed in this wrist, in this world where, you know, the, the, where so many people fail. What is the antidote? What is the one thing we can do to make sure that we're successes in life? Take it as seriously as we do our, our body. Take it as seriously as we do our businesses. Make this examination, the scrutinization of our actions beforehand, afterwards, right? The two simple steps. What's important in life? What does my soul want? What does my body want? What does my eternal soul want? What does my uh, 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 passing body want to invest in? Okay, well, what are the actions to invest in the soul? What are the actions to invest in our body? And now choices. Okay, how do I choose something lasting? How do I avoid something passing? During the action and after the action. Those simple steps, maybe three steps. Number one, to know what's good, to know what's bad. Number two, to choose good, to avoid bad. Number three, to examine afterwards your actions at large, your good actions, and how to, in, how to enforce uh, or to, to, um, uh, how to buttress them, how to, uh, uh, um, uh, how, to, how to make sure that you know, that's the kind of path you choose in life, and how to avoid the sins, and even the, the good myths, even the myths that you do, how to make them crystal, crystal clear, perfect. Purify them. Make them entirely good. Those simple steps, the way to avoid what our soul dreads most. Sounds like the chapter on watchful. Yeah, exactly. That's right. That's right. Now, in conclusion, I think that I said it's two simple steps. I think it's probably an oversimplification. It's maybe two steps or three steps, but they're not simple at all. Uh, but the, the, the ideas themselves are not too hard for us to grasp. Actually inculcating this into our life and our habits, that's what life's all about. The one thing we need to do to make sure that our soul is placated, that our soul is not living in this terrible nightmare that it was scared of, what are the steps that we need to do? How do we make sure that we're the people of whom it is worthy to say it's better for them to be created and not to not be created? How do we pull away from the pack, from the masses of humanity, of whom it was concluded that it's better for them to not be created? In the aggregate, for most people, it's better for them to not be created, as sad as that sounds. What is the key to do that? Two simple steps. It's simple in theory. It's very difficult in practice. But that's what life's all about. 
It's difficult. It's easy in theory, but it's difficult in practice. Uh, I give you guys a little story here. Um, my grandfather, of blessed memory, uh, in his yeshiva, he would encourage people, students, to spend time by themselves, without any distractions, no books, you know. There were no phones at that time, no portable phones at that time, but no phones, most certainly, we could say, by yourself, right? And to live with yourself and, you know, to examine your life and your behavior and your actions. That, that's what it is. It's what's called cheshbon and nefesh, accounting of your soul. And he said that there was this one student, he advised him, he says, go, go spend some time by yourself in the forest. And he came back and he was terrified, he was ashen. He says, why does a cadaver, what, what's the matter? Who, who, did you meet a wolf or something like that? Did you see a snake? Why are you so terrified? He was just terrified. He says, you know what happened? You came face to face with your soul's greatest nightmare. You met yourself. You actually did it. And that's terrifying. <laughs> you actually did this accounting of your life. And that's very scary. Because, like we said, we're very comfortable with the default. There's a reason why most people are very likely to have the default be maintained. And to counteract that, it's not easy at all. You know, and Lusato in his other writings says, listen, this is, this, is, this is it. This is it. This is the one thing you got to do. And he advises, says, do an hour a day, a minimum. Can you imagine? An hour a day by yourself, God. contemplating your actions. It's not as outrageous if you really realize that this is the most important thing you could possibly do in your life. Mm-hmm. If it's the most important thing you could possibly do in your life, well, then it makes sense. And the Talmud and Lusato do a very good argument. They lay out a very good argument why it indeed is the most important thing for you in your life. Um, and I think that that lesson, that is a very timely lesson, it's a very important lesson for us. Uh, it's, it's a very dramatic lesson for us. It's a very transformative lesson for us. You know, if we could actually contemplate our actions, you know, examine our life, you know, ask these questions, right? Examine our actions. Have this big picture of what's good, what's bad, and how to focus on that when we make our choices. And then afterwards, when we examine our choices, when we examine our actions, we have a playback of our life and our actions and use this as the prism to judge our life and our decision, our choices. It's 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 not brain surgery. We could do this. Uh, it's, is it easy? It's absolutely not easy. But I think this is a worthy lesson. This is not just some academic debate that's not relevant to us. It's very very relevant to us. It's more relevant than anything else. It does warrant two and a half years of analysis. It does warrant to be incorporated into the Talmud as a lesson for us today. It is indeed very important for us to learn this lesson. And while, you know, the conclusion could be very depressing, the rabbi told us today that it's better for us to not be created. Death is wonderful. Procreation is stupid. That could be a takeaway. You know, and, 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 that, and that, you know, and that may be true, you know. And, and the reality may be, it's not always so rosy. Only be six here next week. Another nine God forbid. God forbid. But we should know that the Almighty says that this is a wonderful place for us. It's a good place for us. And it could very, very well be a good place for us, even from our perspective. 
and the righteous people are the ones that do follow this uh, attitude of contemplation and introspection and analysis. And they are the people that actually do live the lives of whom it's very true to say it's better for them to be created. It's better. It's, be- it's better to live. They improve. They don't settle with the defaults. They don't just, in this pattern of life, just let's, let's breathe and survive. They live. We could be like that as well. And I think it's also important for us to be, uh, another reassuring aspect of this discussion is that, yes, from God's perspective, it's better for us to be around. We have a hard time seeing that. And we have concluded that it's, in aggregate, it's worse for us to be around. And that's, I think, another important uh, element of the discussion. And I think it's, it's, it's worthy of analysis and understand why, what's the difference. Why is there a discrepancy? Uh, but I think for us, what's clear is that the stakes of our life are certainly raised. Um, we, we see that this is a big picture. Like this started off with our soul being plucked out and selected and inserted and then getting all this instruction and being terrified of the, of the implications and then we're in this world and it, it, it really matters our life. It really matters if we live or die. It really matters what choices we make. And the implications are enormous. And the one thing that we can change, one practical habit we can develop of playing back our decisions in our mind, of assessing and weighing our choices and our priorities in life. That attitude, that habit, makes all the difference. Yes, it's better for us to have not been created, but now that we're created, what's, what, what do we have to do? Contemplate our actions, scrutinize our actions, introspection. We do that, and hopefully we too would be ushered into the group of people of whom it said it's better for us to be created more than to not be created. It's, that's life, guys. That's life. Lutzato, path of the just. Path of the just. Path of the just. And uh, my, uh, my hope for everyone, myself included, is that we take some inspiration of, of today's discussion and hopefully translate it into some sort of change. Let's, let's start with a minor change. You know, just maybe five minutes of playback of our decisions in life and, and, and really take it seriously. And if we do that, you know, the sky's the limit. It's very, very exceedingly better for us to have been created. Uh, and the opportunity is there for us and we can do it and you know, now that we know about it, we, there's no, way, no place to hide anymore. Uh, so I, I, I encourage everyone to really try to incorporate this habit into their lives because the the uh, the benefits of this one change will affect everything. Will affect our entire lives and dramatically change everything. So that's that, guys. We have the instructions. Let's go get them. <laughs> Oh yeah, that's right.